0: This is live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Good evening. Uh, I, I'm Bradley Graham. I'm the um, the co-owner of Politics and Prose, along with my wife, Lissa Muscatine, and on behalf of uh, everybody here at P and P, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. You know, few things get a um, get a journalist's investigative juices going more than than personal experience does. And that certainly was the case with, uh, with Johann Hari and, and the subject of, of depression. Uh, Johan ha- had, had been dealing with his own depression since childhood and had started taking antidepressants when he was 18. Uh, by the time he got to his 30s, he began questioning some of the things uh, that he, he had believed about his, um, his condition and about his medication. Uh, Was depression, for instance, really a function of the chemical imbalance of the brain? And why, even with higher and higher doses of antidepressants, was he still sometimes uh, depressed and and anxious? The idea of challenging such basic notions, notions that had become central to his own sense of sanity, was understandably unsettling for him. So he did what many of us would have done, which is to say he he tried focusing on something else for a while. Um, in his case, he wrote a book uh, on the War on Drugs, uh, Chasing the Scream, uh, that did very well, and some of you may remember when he, w- he was here talking about that. Uh, and he recorded a very popular TED Talk that's titled, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong, and it's uh, attracted millions and millions of viewers. But alas, these projects still left Johann wondering about his own state of mind. So finally, several years ago, he set off on a journey. That ended taking up, uh, taking him more than forty thousand miles, and and led to more than two hundred interviews around the world with social scientists and people who, who suffered depression and anxiety. And the result is his new book, Lost Connections, in which he disputes the chemical imbalance theory and instead attributes depression to a number of external factors, among them loneliness, work-based dissatisfaction, and. Uh, our consumer culture, factors that have more to do with how we live than with the chemical levels uh, in our brain. And as alternative treatments, he reports on efforts that have relied uh, not so much on medication but on things like meaningful work, community projects, and, and social interaction. Uh, Johann takes pains to, to, to document his research and, and to show his methods, uh, mindful uh, of the trouble that. He brought on himself back in 2011 when it was revealed that as a newspaper columnist for The Independent, he had misrepresented quotes from some people cited in his pieces. The back of Lost Connections contains extensive notes and links to websites, journals, and books uh, that were consulted. And his interview recordings uh, have been made available online. Clearly, Johann's arguments are provocative, but he makes a, a compelling case. That depression and anxiety are symptomatic not of a chemical balance or imbalance in our minds, but rather a sort of social and spiritual imbalance in our lives. Uh, No less an authority on depression than Hillary Clinton uh, recently wrote Johanna note uh, extolling the the book. She called it um, wonderful and incisive, and I think you'll soon be seeing that as a blurb. (laughs) <laughs> um, all, all, uh, out uh, about about this book, Johann. Um, we're very fortunate. He, uh, also, he'll he'll be in conversation here this evening with Andrew Sullivan, former editor of the New Republic, pioneering Daily Dish blogger, author uh, or uh, editor of uh, six books, and one of the most influential political writers of his generation. These days, Andrew is writing for for New York New York Magazine. Um, And the two of them, uh, Andrew and Johan, are are friends. So anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Johan Hari and Andrew Sullivan.
1: (laughs) Hello, hi. While Andrew does that, I'll just say I'm really relieved about something, which is that they've given us this kind of microphone, these ones you hold, because uh, when I gave my TED Talk, I had this slightly weird experience where they made me wear, you know, those head microphones. And... um, As the technician put it on me, I said to him, you know, if you make me wear this, I'm going to feel like Madonna. And he looked at me really intensely and he said, you should always feel like Madonna. (laughs) So now whenever I wear one of them, I get this really strong urge to sing Papa Don't Preach and Pray on like Cuban dancers. So uh, anyway.
2: (laughs) Um, One of the loveliest things I get to do every now and again (coughs) is come to politics and prose and talk to a friend of mine. Uh, But this time it's uh, particularly a pleasure because Johan is a a really special human being and a a quite brilliant writer who tackles topics that most people are a little afraid to go near. Um, Those of you who read Chasing the Scream will know that it's a completely devastating overview of the war on drugs and, to my mind, one of the most persuasive books against prohibition that we have. And now, because he's never content with dealing with anything on the surface, I think it's fair to say that this book is a is a further exploration of exactly the the problems that you saw generating drug use um, but this time a different form of drug uh, a, a completely legitimate one, and one that does and has helped people um, so I want to start Johan with just just addressing the, the 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 big controversy that people have raised about the book, which is that the claim, because people no longer have the right ability to think complex thoughts at all, <laughs> is, is that you are declaring that SSRIs and all the other antidepressants that I am on uh, are pretty much useless. Uh, so I, I want you to address exactly that uh, Twitter-level uh, <laughs> argument and see if you can explain why it's right and why it's wrong.
1: To be fair to the people who say that, they admit they've not read the book and they don't seem to have read any of the articles <laughs> I've written. But just, just before I answer that, because it's really important, I just want to say something, which is that, you know, um, one of the arguments in my book is that the causes of depression and anxiety are really deep in our culture. Um, but I am optimistic that we can challenge them and, one of the, and change them. And one of the reasons I'm optimistic is because of Andrew. And I just want to tell you a story, I'm gonna do an insufferable thing which is tell a story about Andrew in front of Andrew which can <laughs> really annoy him. Um, but when I, get ble- when I get down about how deep these causes are, I think about something that Andrew did. So in 1994, uh, Andrew had been diagnosed as HIV positive. This was the height of the AIDS crisis. He'd watched some of the people he most loved die. He left his job as the editor of the New Republic and he went to Provincetown in Cape Cod and he thought he was going to do the last thing he was going to do, which was to write a book. And it was to write a book about a crazy utopian idea that he thought, well, okay, it's obviously too late for me. It's too late for anyone who's alive now. But maybe somewhere down the line, someone will pick this up, right? The crazy utopian idea he was the first person to ever write a book proposing was gay marriage. And (laughs) when I get... (laughs) And when I feel down and I think, you know what, this is a big fight, and we're going to talk about some of the things that are big fights if we're going to really reduce the depression and anxiety crisis we have, I try to imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew in 1994, okay, you're not going to believe me, but 25 years from now, A, you'll be alive, which would have been shocking news. B, um, I'll be with you just afterwards when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes what you're writing now when they declare gay marriage mandatory for the entire United States. And you will be invited the next day by the President of the United States to a White House that is lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag to celebrate what you've (laughs) done. And by the way, that President is gonna be black. Right? (laughs) It would've would've sounded like the most ridiculous science fiction you'd ever heard. Andrew's here, he did it. Right? All right. But, but also,
2: I'm still on antidepressants.
1: Uh. <laughs> hey, you know, you can't win them all. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, in uh, terms of antidepressants. Yeah, take, tackle yeah. the
2: SSRI question. Yeah. Thank so you very much, <laughs> by the way.
1: So, it's really interesting to me. Um, uh, you know, so I wanted to understand this for a very personal reason, right? There were these two mysteries that were kind of hanging over me. One is why was I still depressed? As, as, um, as you heard in the intro, I'd gone to my doctor when I was a teenager. I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was kind of bleeding out of me. I was very ashamed of it. I was very embarrassed by it. And my doctor told me a story. He said, well, we know why you feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people naturally lack it. You're one of them. We'll give you these drugs. They'll make you feel better. And when I started taking the drugs, I felt a really significant boost. Um, And then within a few months, the sense of pain came back. I went back to the doctor. He gave me a higher dose. Uh, again, I felt better. Again, the pain came back. I was in that cycle until I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, and at the end of it, I still felt terrible, right? And I was really afraid to look into this, because when you have a story about your pain, even when that story doesn't work very well, it's like putting a leash on a wild animal, right? At least you know where it is. And, and changing that story feels like you're taking it off. The bigger mystery and the much more important one was I was thinking, why are there so many other people who are so distressed, right? Why are one in five Americans taking a psychiatric drug in their lifetime? Why are one in four middle-aged women in the United States taking an antidepressant in any given year? It seemed to me implausible that it was just due to missing chemicals, not least because it appeared to be massively rising, right? So why would, why would there have just been a spontaneous chemical change? So I ended up going on this big, long journey, at, at over 40,000 miles, and interviewing the world's leading experts on this. And What I learned about antidepressants, I think, is actually quite banal, and I'm surprised that, um, although I understand why people feel challenged by it, I I think actually it it will fit intuitively with what pretty much everyone in this room knows. So depression is measured by something called the Hamilton scale. I've always felt sorry for whoever Hamilton was that this is how (laughs) we remember him, right? Uh, But it goes from zero, which is where you would be dancing around in ecstasy or on ecstasy, uh, to, to 51, where you would be acutely suicidal, right? And to give you a sense of what movement on that looks like, if you improve your sleep patterns, you get a movement of six points on the Hamilton scale. And if your sleep patterns deteriorate, say you have a baby, you go six points the other way, right? On average, according to the best research by Professor Irving Kirsch at Harvard Medical School, chemical antidepressants move people 1.8 points on the Hamilton scale, right? It's important to say that is not nothing, right? 1.8, and it's also important to say it's an average. Some people get more, some people get less, changes over time. Um, that's not nothing I totally understand why people want that I took it for 13 years um, but we have to be honest that doesn't solve the problem for most people it gives some relief which has value it also gives you a lot of side effects which may outweigh that positive effect for some people not everyone but doesn't solve the problem and the reason I think is because it's not dealing with the actual causes of depression and anxiety which is what 90% of my book is my book is about. So I think that the point about antidepressants is kind of banal and obvious, really. It's just surprising that, that that that's, which is a very small part of the book, is is you know, triggers such.
2: Yeah, we, we, we as a culture we're invested in the possibility of a, a, a quick fix to something, and we're also invested in pharmaceuticals uh, up to our eyeballs, um, which includes also obviously illegal ones. There's a reason two million people in this country are on some sort of opioid.
1: And Andrew's written an amazing essay about this which is coming out soon. Which I'm the only person in this room who's read so I feel like a smug. Uh, such, uh, a, smug <laughs> such a PR agent for me anyway. Um, so what are those causes? Yeah, I mean,
2: let's, let's, let's tick them off. And one of the things that you, you talk about in the book, rather movingly, is, is, is loneliness. Yeah. The British government has just, hasn't <laughs> they set up a, a branch of the government to study and tackle h- loneliness? Why in this age when we're all so connected, when in some ways we have so few obstacles to getting in touch with other people, are we
1: yet so alone? So several aspects of that, and you mentioned, so the World Health Organization, so the leading medical body in the world, says mental health is produced socially. It's a social indicator, it needs social solutions as well as individual solutions, right? So there are biological factors that can make you more sensitive to these problems, like your genes, but they don't cause the problems. So it's important to so say this isn't like some fringe medical position. This is the position of the main medical body in the world. And this, this is not just
2: sadness, right? This, no, this, exactly. This is, this
1: is something more profound than that. So there's indelible. a continuum. And one of the things I used to say, which I no longer say because it's not true, is depression and unhappiness are just completely different things. And I totally understand why I said that because it's like when you're depressed, It's extremely irritating how people try to cheer you up in a kind of standard way. In the same way that falling off a cliff is not the same thing as falling over in the street, uh, they're different things but they're on a continuum. Unhappiness and depression are on a continuum. The things that are making some of us very depressed are making most of us unhappy to some degree. So I learned that there are these nine causes of depression and anxiety that I could find scientific evidence for. Two of them are biological and seven are factors in the way we live, some of which not all have massively increased. So loneliness is a very good example of one that's hugely increased. It's an amazing study that just asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could turn to in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer, it's not the average, but the most common answer is none. Right, that, that's pretty startling. And I spent a lot of time interviewing Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, leading expert on loneliness. And he explained to me, think about the circumstances where we evolved, right? The reason why any of us are alive it's because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were incredibly good at one thing. They were really good at banding together in tribes, right? That, that was, they weren't bigger than the beasts they took down, they were much better at cooperating. Every instinct human beings have is to live in a tribe, just like bees need a hive, humans need a tribe. And yet, we are the first human beings ever to try to live without a tribe, right? And you think about where we evolved, if you were separated from the tribe, you were anxious and depressed for a really good reason. You were about to be eaten right? That impulse is still there, right? All of our physical responses when we feel lonely are to be profoundly stressed, anxious, and depressed. And what I was interested in was, well, what's an antidepressant for that, right? Because I think what we need to do, I want to expand the menu of antidepressants. Chemical antidepressants should 100% remain on the menu. We need lots more things to deal with our depression and anxiety. And so one of the heroes of Lost Connections is this amazing doctor I got to know called Sam Everington in East London, where I lived for a long time. So Sam was really uncomfortable. Because loads of patients were coming to him depressed and anxious. And yet, and he had been told in his training, even though he knew the science didn't say this, to just tell people they had a chemical imbalance in their brains and just drug them, right? And like me, he's not opposed to the drugs. but He just thought, this, this isn't enough. He listened to their lives, and he thought, your pain makes sense. I understand why you feel this way. So loneliness was a big factor. So he decided to try a different approach. Um, so I'll give you an example from one of his patients. A woman called Lisa Cunningham came to him. Lisa, who I got to know, Lisa had been shut away in her home for seven years with just crippling depression and anxiety. And Sam said to her, I'll keep prescribing drugs, don't worry. I'm also gonna prescribe something different. He prescribed for her to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. Um, and he said, what we're gonna do, well, I'll turn out and support you. I'd like you to meet twice a week with a group of depressed and anxious people and we're going to turn this into something beautiful. So they, they turn out, the first time, first meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety, right? They turn out, they start, these are inner city, East London people, who didn't know anything about gardening. They started to teach each other and themselves gardening, right? They literally put their fingers in the soil. There's lots of evidence, disconnection from the natural world is another cause of depression and anxiety. And they did what human beings do when we get together in groups. They started to solve each other's problems. One of the guys, a very extreme example, was sleeping on the public bus. Everyone else in the group was outraged. Of course you're gonna be depressed if you're sleeping on the bus. They started pressuring the local authorities to get him housed. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something for someone else in years, and it made them feel great. And the way Lisa put it, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program, found it was more than twice as effective on the Hamilton scale as chemical antidepressants. I think for an obvious reason. It was dealing with one of the key reasons why they felt so bad in the first place. Everywhere I went in the world, the programs that were most effective in reducing depression and anxiety were ones that were actually dealing with the reasons why we feel so terrible in the first place.
2: Now, one of the things we're seeing is in the younger generations, very high rates of depression, especially amongst the teens and millennials. um, To what extent has has, uh, social media really uh, spawned deeper and wider depression
1: so i wanted to understand this i actually thought of you when i was there um, uh,
2: i went to the first that's responsible by the way for getting me to stop blogging i mean i blame if you want to blame someone it was johan's insistence that i was going to crash pretty soon that got me to uh, realize how badly screwed up i was so i remember the he day knows what he's talking about
1: the day andrew breitbart died i like saw the news and i rang andrew and i was like this is what i've been fucking telling you is going to happen right um, Sorry, I keep swearing. I know Americans find this more offensive than British people. I'm sorry. (laughs) My mother is from Glasgow where, you know, this would be like, anyway. Um, No, so I went to this... Swearing and gardening. It's it's (laughs) totes Brit. So I went to this, um, I went to the first ever internet rehab center in the United States. It's in Washington state. And the first thing that happened to me, I arrived there. It's a clearing in the woods outside Spokane. And the first thing I did was just absolutely instinctively look at my phone and feel really irritated. I had no cell phone reception. I was like, wait. You are in a rehab center for internet <laughs> addicts, right? Um, so anyway, I got speaking to this, the woman who runs it, Dr. Hilary Cash, really helped me to understand this. Um, she, she, she's an amazing person. And so sh- she helped me to think about several things. So they get a lot of young men who are obsessed with these multiplayer role-player games like World of Warcraft. And she said to me, what do these young men get out of these games? There's something they're getting out of it, right? It's not meeting their needs, but they're getting something, what is it? She said they're getting all the things that human beings need that the culture no longer gives them. They get a tribe, they get a sense of identity, they get a sense, a way to rise, a way to gain status, they get a sense that they're seen by other people. And it made me think a lot about the moment when the internet arrives, right, in human culture. So for most of us in the late 90s, you were a bit ahead of the curve, Andrew, but most of us in the late 90s, a lot of the things that caused depression and anxiety were already supercharged by that time. Loneliness is one example, there's lots of others. Um, But what happens is the internet arrives and it looks an awful lot like the things we've lost, right? It gives you Facebook friends in place of the friends that have gone away. It gives you status updates in place of like status. And it it, it appears to look like the thing we've lost. But I came to think that the relationship between social media and social life is like the relationship between pornography and sex, right? I'm not anti-porn, right? It's got a place. I look at it sometimes. But (laughs) no one feels, if they spend an hour looking at porn, feels satisfied and held and valued the yeah. way you do after <laughs> sex, right? If sex goes well. Uh, the, you know, and in a similar way, so if your sex life just consisted of porn, you would be constantly irritated and frustrated because your deeper needs would not be met. And well, that,
2: that accounts for a, a huge <laughs> number of married men in, in, in America, right?
1: And, and in a similar way, if your, if your social life consists disproportionately of social media, which does not make you feel seen or heard or valued, even when people are paying attention to you, Um, you're going to feel angry and frustrated and this comes back to that thing that question about deep underlying needs right everyone in this room knows you have physical needs right you need food you need water you need shelter you need clean air if i took any of them away from you you would all be in trouble real fast right there's equally strong evidence that we have natural psychological needs you know that that we were talking about and uh, you've got to feel that someone you've got to feel that you belong you've got to feel that you are valued You've got to feel that your life has meaning and purpose. You've got to feel that you have a future that makes sense. And we have a culture that does many good things, but we are getting less and less good at meeting people's deep underlying psychological needs. You mentioned this in terms of kids. I mean, there's an incredible study in Britain. No one's done a study like this in the U.S., but I'm pretty sure it'd find the same thing. On average, the average British child spends less time outdoors than the average maximum security prisoner because by law, the prisoner has to have 70 minutes a day. So you think about this, these are kids we've raised who we've treated worse than the worst murderers and rapists, Mm -hmm. right? When it comes to access to the outside world. And we're surprised they can't regulate anxiety and form normal social interactions, right? But what did we expect would happen? And that's a function of the collapse of community. People are scared to let their kids go out when they don't know that there's anyone around who's going to be looking at them, right?
2: Um, This, to my mind, is not an argument that leads one to be optimistic, right? (laughs) Uh, I mean, let me ask you a simple question. Do you think there was...
1: Do you think we now have much more depression than people
2: had, say, in the 18th century?
1: It's hard to know. So what we do know, some factors that contribute to depression and anxiety have risen. Loneliness is one. Uh, There's some that I think have risen, but it's contested. If you think your work has no meaning, you are significantly more likely to become depressed and anxious. Let's let's talk about work for a second,
2: because, you know, that's where most people spend a large amount of their days and work has changed of course and it keeps changing uh, what is it about work today that that fails to satisfy this core human need
1: yeah so there's a, a wonderful australian social scientist called michael marmot who i spent a lot of time with who discovered the key to this so i noticed that loads of the people i know who are depressed and anxious their anxiety and depression focuses around their work right so i started thinking well What's the evidence for how we feel about our work? Gallup did the most detailed opinion poll study of this. Here in the United States, a really detailed two year long study. It found 13% of us, one 3% of us, like our work most of the time. 63% of us are what they called sleepwalking through work. So you don't like it, you don't hate it. And 24% of people hate their work, fear it and dread it. Right? So let's think about that. 87% of people in our culture don't like the thing they're doing most of the time you're almost twice as likely to hate your work as like your work. I started to think, well, could this be having some effect on our mental health, given that's what we do <laughs> most of the time, right? So I can explain how, if you want, because think it's a great story, but just to give you the headline, Professor Marmot discovered the core of what causes depression at work. It's not the only thing, but the core of it is if you have no control over your work or low control. Human beings, like I was saying, have a need to feel our lives are meaningful. And if you're controlled, it disrupts your ability to create meaning out of your work. And what was interesting about this, and this is where it does give me hope, I actually totally misunderstood what he was telling me. I had to keep going back to it, because I thought he was saying, well, there's this 13% who are gonna have nice lives, right? And everyone else is condemned to the shitty jobs that, you know, Uh, and I thought about my dad, who was a bus driver, my brother, who's a delivery guy. I thought, wait, are we just saying they're condemned to be miserable? But Professor Mahomet said to me, no, Johan, you've completely misunderstood what I'm saying. It's not work that makes you depressed. It's controlled work. And there's a really interesting example of how we can move beyond that. So I went, not far from here, went in Baltimore, met an amazing person called Meredith Keough. So Meredith um, used to go to bed every Sunday night just sick with anxiety. And one day with her husband, Josh, they did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a teenager, which is, you know, controlled, insecure work. And one day Josh and the other people who worked in this bike store just said to themselves, what does our boss actually do? They didn't d- hate their boss, they liked him actually as a person. But they were like, we fixed the bikes. <laughs> what does he do? Right? So they decided they were gonna set up a bike store that ran on a different principle. It's not a corporation, it's a democratic cooperative. They take all the big decisions together, they're all the boss, they vote, um, they, they share the profits, they share out the good tasks and the crappy tasks, so no one gets stuck with just the crappy tasks. And what's so fascinating is how many of them and uh, other democratic cooperatives I spoke to, totally in line with Professor Marmot's research, talked about how they, felt humili- how they felt depressed and anxious in this previous way of working and did not feel depressed and anxious now. Now it's important to say, they didn't quit their jobs fixing bikes and go and become like Beyonce's backing singers, right? Mm-hmm. They fixed bikes before, they fixed bikes now. But think about how many people you know who are depressed, who if they knew that tomorrow they were going into a workplace that they controlled with their colleagues, where they set the priorities, where if there has to be a boss, he's accountable to them and elected by them. That's a very different way of living to the alienation and humiliation we have now. And as Josh said to me, there's no reason why any business should be uh, run as a corporation rather than a democratic cooperative. Study at Cornell University found more democratic businesses grow four times faster. This is an anti-capitalist argument. These corporations compete in the marketplace. That, that bike store, Baltimore Bicycle Works, competes on the marketplace. It does really well. It's just what, what is the unit that should be competing in the market? It's one that should give people back control. There's a reason why Trump and Brexit and all these disastrous campaigns can talk so powerfully about giving people back control, right? The Brexit slogan was, take back control. Now, the lie was that the people who took the control away from you were the European Union, obviously, but you can see why that resonates with people because people's experience in this culture is of being controlled almost all the time.
2: But wasn't that always... Why is that worse now? I mean, to some extent, there's a much more sort of a gig economy in which people are kind of making profits for themselves, they are generating their own uh, entrepreneurship. I mean, I think of Uber drivers or Lyft drivers as the sort of a new kind of class. Now they, they are in some ways <laughs> drones in this big machine, but they do have some agency in, yeah. in that. Uh, uh, compared to a factory line job, don't people today have slightly more control or is there something about the kind of work that we're now doing that has made us feel more abandoned or less connected
1: so meaningful work is one of the factors where we don't know if it's gone up or down we don't have good research from the past so the truth is we don't know um i my hunch which is i don't say with anything like the confidence i say a lot of the things in the book is that it probably the experience of just email and being constantly on phones has probably increased people's sense of being controlled and monitored we don't know but we do know, I, uber is an interesting example because i think most people's it's going to sound like a weird example but I think it's an interesting one that I thought about a lot when I was traveling through the states that elected President Trump. Um, So in Canada, First Nations people, what we would call Native Americans, have extremely high levels of suicide. And a professor I interviewed, Professor Michael Chandler, did this really interesting research. There are 196 First Nations groups in Canada. And what he discovered is some of them have super high suicide rates and some have no suicides at all. And he was like, what's the difference? He spent, I think it was a decade, researching this. And what he discovered was really interesting. Some of those First Nations communities have been able to regain collective control of their community. They've rebuilt their language, they control the school system, they control their own police service, and some have not been able to do any of that. They've been kept so infantilized and broken up. And what he found is the suicide, you look at it on a graph, it's extraordinary. The suicide rate correlates incredibly closely with that experience of collective control. And I thought about that a lot when I was traveling around, you know, in the areas, so we're not just talking about depression here, we're talking about people killing themselves, right? And, you know, I I was on this, I thought about that a lot. I I was on the street in Cleveland in the run-up to the election. And I'll never forget this. We were on, I was with a wonderful guy called Dave Fleischer from the LA LGBT Center. We were trying to get out the vote. It's non-partisan, but obviously we're trying to get out the vote for Hillary, (laughs) if I'm honest. Um, We knock on all these doors. It was one of those long streets in Cleveland. If anyone's been to Cleveland, it's like Detroit without the poetry of the ruins, right? (laughs) And we're on this long street where a third of the houses have been demolished, a third are abandoned, and a third still have people living in them. And we knocked on one door, and there was a woman who I would have guessed from looking at her was 60. From talking to her, actually discovered she was exactly the same age as me. And she was quite articulate, extremely angry. And she made this verbal slip. She meant to talk about what the area used to be like, and she meant to say, when I was young. What she actually said is when I was alive. And it really hit me. And every time I hear people patronize Trump voters, I think Don Trump is a catastrophe, don't misunderstand me. But every time people patronize Trump voters and say, oh, they're just stupid, they're just racist, um, I think of that woman and I think, you know, watch yourself, it's not true. We, we, it, we, if you live in a culture where people's deeper psychological needs are not met, where significant numbers of people feel they are in fact dead in some way, um, that will manifest in some people saying, just burn the whole house down then, right? I don't care. And uh, you know what, I don't blame that woman. Now, I, I wish she had not made the choice she made. I wish Hillary Clinton had not been available to blurb my book, because she was living in the White House. So I'm sure Donald Trump would not be blurbing it if it was the other way around. Um, but, but, we, but we have to understand what's going on here. And I think that the drivers of, depre- I mean, they're going a bit beyond the science here, but I think the drivers of depression are the drivers of Trump. There's this very interesting research that shows the collapse of social capital so social connections graphs extremely closely with support for Trump.
2: You also get the sense that the towns and small cities that certainly are also the epicenter of the opioid epidemic um, once had meaning. Um, there was a, a town which had a big factory that you know we we our little town produced so many shoelaces in the world, or we we made steel that went out in the world. This sense of Identity. Also one gets a sense that, that uh, they don't really, as someone as Ali Hoch- Hochschild put it, uh, feel like strangers in their own land. And there was, in those places a real sense of community. I mean, in, in Dreamland, Sam Kinyoni's brilliant book about the opioid epidemic uh, takes Portsmouth, Ohio and sees a, vi- you know, really vibrant mid-century city, little town, uh, which really made sense and people were proud of where they lived. But something about the forces of globalization in particular, in which people feel completely without control, um, along with deindustrialization, of course, is much harder to invent meaning. But the other thing I want to suggest to you is that the decline of religion has something to do with this. Uh,
1: Andrew's deliberately saying this to provoke me because a long-standing, as I'm an atheist, and one of the long-standing things we've been arguing about for about 15 years now is religion. But no, actually, Andrew has somewhat won me over to put this, not, not that I'm still an atheist, but the, I think, well, very interestingly, the group, there's very good, robust research on this. The group with the lowest levels of depression in the United States by a significant way are the Amish. So I went and spent some time in an Amish community, which is really challenging for a gay lefty, right? The, um, and I have to say, although there's a lot I object to in the Amish, obviously, and I'm not suggesting we all convert. Um, uh, not just because I've recently re-watched Witness. Um, the, the, no, they've got something we don't have. They have a very deep sense of communal connection. They have no inequality. The richest Amish is as rich as the poorest Amish. Um, they have a very deep sense of meaning and purpose and connection. And it, it was very challenging. One of the guys, Lauren Beachy, is a great guy, who, who, an Amish guy I got to know, said to me at one point, because they all have to live in our world, right? They, when they're 16, they have to go on Rumspringer, they have to live with us. It's why no one classes the Amish as a cult. Um, and then they have to decide whether they want to come back. And he said, so they know how we live very well. And he said to me, you know, it reminds me of Weight Watchers, he said, you know, you can only give, he, he's talking about, they, he'd given up so much to be part of the Amish, but he gained so much in community. He said, if I had a car, I just wouldn't see people that often because I'd go and drive somewhere, right? And he said, it's like Weight Watchers. You couldn't give up weight on your own but in a group you can. And I said, wait, so are you saying the Amish is like Weight Watchers for the problems of Western civilization? And he said, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, um, but in terms of yeah, answers... I'm also that saying
2: <clears throat> that Western civilization is actually an error. <laughs> I think that's going, the going the too far. <laughs> the long course of human history that the way we live now is so far away from the way human beings lived and were happy for close to 197,000 years uh, That in fact we're the victims of our own success; Uh, that we've created a modern society in which we've lost the core interactions and society and meaning uh, that that used to make people happy, and that liberal democracy, in particular, which leaves an empty center at the heart of it. It doesn't want there's no established religion. There's no that is that's always been susceptible. So when Tocqueville looked at America. Um, he was amazed. He was certainly worried that commerce and travel and restlessness would create a bunch of isolated atomized people. And he noticed that the way America actually counteracted those forces of modernity was incredibly strong civil associations, really strong family ties, and pathological religion everywhere that, that, that was a counterbalance to these sort of, this sort of acidic nature of of what we might call liquid modernity, which is where we are. Uh, And those have gone, and with them gone, we're depressed or on drugs.
1: But one of the reasons I'm not as pessimistic as that would make us sound is a few things. Firstly, I think the insights are very close to the surface that we're talking about, right? You don't, this is not like explaining quantum physics or Chomsky and linguistics to someone, right? You don't have to talk to people, in a way, when I was writing the book, I kept thinking, this is simultaneously quite radical, and unbelievably banal, right? I was saying to people, if your work is meaningless, if we stop someone on the street out there and say, hey, do you think if your work is meaningless, you're lonely, you think that life is about getting money and status, you're more likely to become depressed, they'll look like, us, like we're an idiot, and they'll go, of course, right? And yet what we've done is, this is, this is my main objection <coughs> to the chemical imbalance story that we've been told about depression. It has divorced us from the reasons we feel this way. It's told us a narrative that has divorced us from understanding why we feel like this and seeking out the meaningful solutions. And there are lots of, and w- the one advantage of the catastrophe that we're living through at the moment is all the alarm bells are ringing, right? Every al- Donald Trump is the most powerful man in the world. The alarm bells could not be louder. <laughs> and, 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 and so I just want to name two things, I know we're <laughs> gonna be nice to take questions in a minute. I mean, two things that I think ha- can give us some sense of hope about this. There was, I was learning intellectually about a lot of these things, and there was a moment when it totally fell into place for me. I thought, I get this now. I went to interview an amazing South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield. And Derek happened to, by coincidence, <coughs> he was researching something else. He was in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced there, right? And um, the doctors there didn't know what they were, so they said, well, what are these drugs? And he explained it. and they said, and, and they said, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about a herbal remedy or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer, rice farmer, who worked in the fields who one day stood on a landmine. And they gave him an artificial limb and he went back to work in the fields. But apparently it's super painful to work underwater with an artificial limb. It's, um, and it's traumatic, obviously, to go to a place where you've been blown up. He starts to cry all day, doesn't want to get out of bed. Classic depression, right? So they said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what did you do? They said, well, they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They saw that his pain made sense. This is the most important thing I want to say to depressed anxious people. Your pain makes sense, right? It's not an irrational pathology. You're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And they figured if they bought this guy a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to go into the fields that were depressing him. They bought him a cow. Within a few weeks, his crying stopped, and now he was fine. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? What those doctors... Now, if you've been raised to think about depression, we've been told by our doctors that sounds like a joke, right? But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years, right? That depression is a response to things going wrong, to deep, unmet needs. And I just want to give you one example of an antidepressant that I think... (coughs) helps to remedy some of these deep problems that you're, you're talking about. There was an experiment that was done, and that, in fact, your friend Barack Obama has recommended. Um, there was, um, <coughs> there was uh, an experiment in Canada in the 1970s. Obama loves Andrew. Uh, there, there was an experiment done in the, the 1970s in Canada. The Canadian government did this quite bold thing. They chose a town at random. It's a town called Dauphin. It's about four hours out of um, Winnipeg. And they said to a really big group of people in this town, from now on, we're gonna give you a guaranteed income. We're gonna give you the equivalent of in today's money 15,000 US dollars. There's nothing you have to do for it and there's nothing you can do that means we'll take this away. We just want you to have a nice life, right? And for three years they did this until a conservative government came in and got rid of it and, and, th- and it was monitored by an amazing woman I interviewed called Dr. Evelyn Forget to see what happened, right? Loads of interesting things happened. People spent more time with their kids. Um, no one stopped working. But lots of people turned down shitty jobs and waited for better jobs, so work standards improved. But the biggest thing that happened, and the most important, is there was a massive fall in depression and anxiety. Depression that was so severe people had to be hospitalized fell by 9% in three years. You won't find a drug anywhere in the world that has a fall like that, produces a fall like that, right? And as Dr. Forget said to me, it's an antidepressant. More than half of all Americans don't have $500 in the bank for if a crisis comes along, right? Anyone here not feel anxious when they imagine that scenario? Right? It deals with some of the deep underlying anxiety, and what it does is it buys us time to begin to reconnect. So if you say to people now, you know, one of my closest relatives is a struggling single mother who is fighting to pay the rent, right? When she gets home, she collapses in front of the television. The idea of saying to her, your job now is to democratize your workplace and fight for a universal basic it would be ridiculous, right? What, what a universal basic income does is it buys people time. And, um, And it's a really potent antidepressant. It's one of the seven different kinds of antidepressant that I talk about. But I don't think we need to be hopeless and pessimistic because I think the insights that lead to this change... Firstly, if one in five of your fellow citizens are taking a psychiatric drug, it's very hard for anyone to deny something's gone terribly wrong. If the most powerful person in the world is Donald Trump, it's quite hard to deny something's gone terribly wrong. Um, We know... It's just about opening up a different story about how we can bond together and fight for change. And you're an amazing example of that, Andrew, and what you've achieved. So, you know. And actually, this is less unlikely than gay marriage would have seemed in 1994, right? In some ways.
2: Yeah, I guess. Um, (laughs) uh, Get yourself a cow. I think that's the... uh, um, And reconnect... Have have a cow. (laughs) Don't have a cow. Uh, Uh... and the I, 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 we'll, maybe we'll talk a bit about the dis- divorce from the natural world as another, another aspect of this. But now's the time for you guys to ask questions. Hello. Um, we have a Great. microphone yeah. there. Oh, uh, thank you very much, <laughs> cheers.
3: So th- thank you both Hi. so very much. Um, so my favorite meme from this week is, imagine a president proposing to have $25 billion spent on building up our nation's education system instead of a wall. So with that said, do you have some research that speaks to your findings as it relates to what these upcoming generations could potentially learn from your findings from all of this research and how that could be applied within
1: the education system? Thank sure, you. Sure, sure. Um, I mean, I think... Uh, our education system was built to prepare people to work in factories in the 1870s, right? There's this guy, Alfie Cohn, uh, who says, every school has two curriculums, curricula. Um, There's the kind of official curriculum where you learn, like, geography or whatever. And there's the hidden curricula, which is the things the school is teaching you to put up with. So our schools are designed to teach people to put up with boredom, uh, sitting there and doing something you don't care about, uh, tolerating it, shutting up, you know, that, and, and if we live in a society where 87% of people find their work, you know, don't like what they're doing at work, well, then a school system will have to prepare people for that. So I think rather than deadening our children, we should change how we live so that we don't have to have deadened adults. Um, but at the moment, we have a school system that is at some level designed to deaden people, right? And kids rebel against it because it's awful. It's, you know, we've talked about this before, you know. So I think... Um, Part of it is, is changing how the society functions, because then we'd be preparing humans. A free society will want free children that are prepared to live in a free society. A society where most of your waking life is spent deadened for 87% of people will have a school system that prepares people to be deadened, you know. Next.
3: Oh. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Hi. Hi, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, first, uh, I had a chance to check out your website, and I think it's incredibly cool that you posted the interviews the audio oh, recordings you. of the interviews on your site. And I listened to a handful, and I thought that was a great feature of the book. Oh, I wanted to ask uh, a question. So you started off by uh, telling a story of what happened to you when you, I guess you were 13, you said, and going to the doctor and what the doctor told you and how the doctor explained. I think you're exactly right. It's, it's this narrative about serotonin. But what your doctor didn't do is actually measure anything about your serotonin. And that's a hypothesis that has, turned, has not yet been There's a lot of debate about. And um, that said, um, these these treatments uh, for some individuals do work really well. For others, they don't work well at all. And we need to find better treatments. And we need to be able to determine which treatments will work for which people. So, But that said, the question I want to ask is we also know that A large number of people with depression and other mental health problems don't get treatment. And a lot of the barriers that you talked about that lead to depression also are barriers for treatment. And I wouldn't want a take-home message from the the book to be uh, dissuading people against treatment because we know that that's a huge issue also to increase rates of uh, access to treatment.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, My argument is for expanding the menu, not taking anything off the menu. And... um, in terms of the serotonin theory, I mean, I was really shocked when I went and spoke to scientists about this. So um, uh, Dr. David Healy, for example, one of the leading British experts said to me, you can't even say the serotonin story was discredited, because it was never credited. There was never a time when half of the scientists in the field thought depression was caused by low serotonin. Um, Professor Andrew Scarl at Princeton says it is deeply misleading and unscientific, that was his phrase, to say depression is just caused by low serotonin. Uh, Professor Joanna Moncrief at the University of London says it doesn't even make sense to talk about a chemical imbalance in the brain because we don't know what a chemically balanced brain would look like. These are terms that were invented by drug company PRs, right? Because they could sell the drugs, right? That's not to say the drugs have no value. You're right. They have some value. They should be on the menu. But... um, Can I
2: ask you about mm. um, ECT? um, You know, electroconvulsive therapy. Um, uh, My mom was bipolar... From you know, a pretty young age. Uh, and <clears throat> she went through, over the years, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of ECT sessions. Uh, do, do you credit any of that?
1: Sure. So it's worth just saying about bipolar. So um, there's a very broad consensus that all mental health problems have three kinds of cause, which exist for everyone. So biological causes, which are obvious. Psychological causes, how you think about yourself, how your thoughts work, and social causes. So let's think about something like dementia, which obviously has a massive, overwhelming biological component, right? Even, obviously, even with dementia, there's a really significant psychological and social component. Socially isolated people develop dementia much faster. Even people who actually, if you speak another language, you're much less likely to develop, you develop dementia later. So there are, even with something that's so obviously biological in its cause, there are significant social and psychological causes. So with bipolar, there are some biological contributions to to what you might call standard depression. Significant ones, your genes can make you between 30 and 40% more sensitive to depression and anxiety. Um, So with bipolar, there seems to be a consensus among scientists, and obviously I asked lots of them and looked at their research, that bipolar has a more significant biological component than what you would think of as standard depression. and sure, ECT, I think, is um, that there's, there's a fairly robust level of body of evidence that ECT does have some effect. Ketamine? Um, yeah.
2: Ketamine's uh, the, the, the hip new uh, treatment. Do you have well, any thoughts about ketamine? Well,
1: psychedelics, I think, are. Ri- so this is something that fascinating. Oh, yeah, psilocybin. Me. Yeah, so there's this. I've ri- interviewed in loads of places. So that you may know, until the n- mid 1960s, there was um, a lot of research done into giving LSD to people with depression and alcoholism and other problems. And it was quite promising. It wasn't really done in the way you'd want scientific research to be done today, but it was promising. And then Nixon shut it all down. And it's been reawakened in the last five years, and I went and interviewed scientists all over the world who've done this. And it has very promising effects, but, and this, I think, speaks to what you were saying before about alienation. There's a little sub-finding. I, I could talk about this all night, but there's a little sub-finding I want to tell you because it's so exciting. So, it's done just up, this, up the, not far from here, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Um, so what they found is... If you give people psilocybin, you get all sorts of positive effects, like uh, reduction in addiction, but there's a little catch to this. When you take psilocybin, the active component in magic mushrooms, um, most people have what we would call a spiritual experience. Your ego shrinks, you get a sense that you're deeply connected to the world around you, right? Uh, But there's a variety in, so some people have no spiritual experience, and some people have a very intense spiritual experience. And what they found is the positive effects, like reduction in addiction and depression, Correlate exactly with the intensity of the spiritual experience if you have no spiritual experience you don't get the benefit If you have a very intense spiritual experience you get a lot of the benefits So what that tells us it's not like the story used to be told about chemical antidepressants Oh, it flips some chemical switch in your brain that kind of thing It's a a lesson it tells you you can feel deeply connected You can feel deeply in communion with the natural world with other people But then you've got to integrate that insight into your life Which is the more challenging thing in the world in which we live
2: which is what religion used to do. But anyway.
1: <laughs> you <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> had to get that in, Andrea. Yes, I do. Well, uh, I, I, I think it's, it's, I true, think
2: it's, it's incredibly true. important. I think the notion that we're <laughs> all loved, that there is meaning that uh, you go through life according to that meaning, and it's a place of refuge in hard times. Um, anyway, yeah.
4: Hi. Hi. Um, hi. I am wondering if you looked at um, the way that rates of and types of anxiety and depression break down along race and gender lines. Um, I noticed that you quoted a statistic about a fourth of American women, middle-aged women, I believe you said, are on some kind of uh, antidepressant or psychiatric drug. And um, I believe that women suffer from anxiety at higher rates than men do. And kind of related to that, I've been doing a lot of thinking about anxiety and anger, and I've come to believe that a lot of anxiety is unexpressed or unacknowledged anger. Um, so I'm just wondering if you looked at that, anger, trauma, oppression, and how that relates to all this, and also anxiety yeah. versus depression.
1: Yeah, Thanks. that's a really good, so there's two bits of that, so anxiety versus depression. I should write down. Uh, um, there's two bits of that, um, and the evidence is quite contradictory. So for example, men have significantly higher suicide rates. Women have higher anxiety rates. Um, it, it was not completely clear to me the gender breakdown. With race, I think one of the most interesting findings is, so immigrants, first-generation immigrants and second-generation immigrants have much higher levels of mental health problems across the board. Things like schizophrenia, for example, are much higher. And there's a debate about this, and this is controversial what I'm saying, so you know, there are scientists who disagree with this bit. But um, I think it's partly moving from a from a collectivist society to an individualist society. So we know that collectivist societies have lower levels of mental health problems than individualist societies. And I think if you move from Bangladesh or Vietnam or whatever and you become an American and you integrate, you actually become deeply individualist. There's a really interesting study about this. Professor, a woman called Dr. Brett Ford, who I interviewed in Berkeley, did a really interesting bit of research. It just, they looked at, if any of you decided you were gonna deliberately, consciously spend more of your time trying to be happier, would you actually become happier? right? And they did this research, she didn't do it in every country, but with her colleagues, in the United States, Russia, China, and Japan. And what they found was, in this country, if you try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. But In the other countries, if you try to become happier, you do, and they were like, what's going on? They did more research, they figured out, in the United States, if we try to make ourselves happier, what we do, is we do something for ourselves. You buy something, you try to get a promotion, you work harder, you show off on Instagram, whatever. In the other, we have an instinctively individualistic conception of happiness. In the other countries, most of the time, when you try to make yourself happy, you did something for someone else. You try to help your family, your friends, your community, and that vision of happiness works. We're not that species, the individualist species, right? We wouldn't exist if we'd been the individualist. If we'd lived by Ayn Rand rules, we'd all be dead, right? The, the so um, I think the pressure of moving from it, that individualist from the collectivist model to the individualist model is one of the reasons why this happens. But the, uh, what you're saying is really important, and I, you know the gender thing is not clear, and I think the immigration thing—that's a big part of what's going on, in addition to just racism, obviously, and oppression generally. Yes. All right. Hi, John.
5: Hi. Thank you so much for your really important work and your fantastic insights. Uh, I, I have a question arising from my own r- reporting from my own book, Mental Health Incorporated about corruption and big pharma affecting mental health care and uh, addiction treatment. What I want one of the questions that I found that I could not answer was, what do people do now in the short term for what's called, trauma-informed care. You wrote very eloquently in that Huffington Post column in your book about the role of trauma and how much it increases people's depression and anxiety. In the short term, uh, there's a buzz term now, which is trauma-informed care, but I was left mystified, although I gave some websites about where you might find help, how people right now who believe they've been traumatized, and in fact generally are, get help in the real term now with therapists who are skilled with a, particular, a variety of methodologies and have good rapport that can make a difference without relying on meds. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things in, in that. So one of the people, one of the heroes of my book, and a person I found very challenging at first is a guy called Dr. Vincent Felitti. He's based in San Diego. He is the scientist who, with the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, proved that childhood trauma causes an extraordinary array of adult um, challenges. If you have had a severely traumatic childhood, you're 3,100% more likely to attempt suicide as an adult. You are 4,600% more likely to become an adult injecting drug user. These are absolutely astonishing figures. You don't get figures like that in medicine very often. But he did this, re- and, and I found that very challenging for all sorts of reasons, but he did this next phase of his research that was incredibly encouraging. So, um, every patient who came to Kaiser Permanente, the um, not-for-profit medical provider in California that he worked for, was uh, given a questionnaire, asked about did any of these bad things happen to you when you were a kid? And the next time they came for healthcare, for anything, the doctors were instructed to just say to them, I see that when you were a child you were sexually abused or whatever the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened. That should never have happened to you. Mm -hmm. Would you like to talk about it? And a lot of people didn't want to talk about it, but a lot of people did. And at the end of it, they, they would then say, You can go and talk, I can refer you to a therapist if you want. What's incredible is just that five minute intervention of an authority figure saying, This should never have happened to you, mm-hmm. led to a really significant reju- reduction in depression and anxiety. The release of shame of being told, you know, One elderly woman wrote to Vincent and said, um, I'm so glad you were, she was, I think she was in the 80s. I'm so glad you asked. She'd been sexually abused when she was a child. I thought I would die, and no one would ever know, right? And and you, and we know this from the AIDS crisis. Gay men who were closeted gay men died on average two years earlier than openly gay men, even when they got medical care at the same time. Shame destroys you. So you're totally right. We've got to refer, You know, we've got to. You know, fixing the American healthcare system is a bit beyond my remit. You might have noticed it's challenged a few people over their time. Um, but um, but no the evidence for providing people with therapy in places to release their shame is so completely overwhelming that uh, it goes without saying is
2: is that why uh, talk therapy actually works you think
1: (laughs) so it's difficult i want to be precise about yeah and i promise i'll come to a second i want to be precise about this because um it's hard to prove the effectiveness of talk therapy because you can't give people a placebo therapist where they think they're getting therapy and they don't (laughs) right and then compare it it's a very difficult. So, my instinct very strongly is someone who's had a psychotherapist for 13 years, although I have to confess annoyingly, my therapist wrote a book about his patients, <laughs> and I went to see him for 13 years. He didn't write about me. And I was like, who are these other patients who are so much more interesting than me, right? This is probably, and then we had a conversation about narcissism, as you can imagine. Um, but no, the, the, but the, the, I had this. Um, no, but the thing about therapy, um, I, my strong instinct is it works. That work that Vincent Felitti did is the best evidence we have that therapy works, but it's it's a complicated picture, and you don't want to overstate the evidence.
2: Yes. Hi. We have time Hi. for Just two more. Actually. It's it's
6: so wonderful to see you, and um, I I just want to be honest and say that I have not read your book because I saw it. I saw your wonderful article yesterday. Um, I'm a clinical social worker. My practice is up the road, and I am a trauma-informed therapist. So yes, we exist. Okay. And sh- come on down, <laughs> and I wanted to say to you. This, so there's two things. Um, the first thing is, yes, trauma-informed care is a expertise. It is an area of care. It's taken many, many years to develop this type of care, and and it's taken us many, many mistakes, unfortunately. And that's how we, you know, we move forward. With that said, yes, it's true that 99.999% of my clients who have been Prior diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, bipolar disorder, and other affective disorders that we don't know, one have um, are trauma-based clients. in other words, they're all traumatized every single one, except for the one that might have schizophrenia. okay so that's number one. number two, about your book and what I've heard so far. I've been waiting for the therapeutic aspect to show up. I wanted to say, I'm sorry that you had the experience with going to a doctor and him throwing pills at you and you going, how come I don't feel better? Well, gee whiz. <laughs> yeah, this obvious to me. Why don't you feel better? And so I wanted to ask you about the experience of psychotherapy coupled with antidepressants that is the number one the number one intervention that puts people over the edge. It is the combination of both. So if I go to a doctor uh, and I say let's,
2: let's, that's, that's, let's just get a question.
6: Yeah. So that's what I want to know. What is you how have you been dealing with the issue of psychotherapy? Because we're yeah. hearing
1: about yeah, yeah, antidepressants. Yeah. Sure. So there's a, a lot about this. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Sure. It's really important. Um there's a chap a whole big bit about it in the book. Um So I think it's good that you're talking about psychotherapy because there's been a big push in Britain, the government has funded it, for cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And there is some value to cognitive behavioral therapy, but I have to confess, and to be fair to the main defender of cognitive behavioral therapy in Britain, Professor Richard Layard, he says it should be paired with social change. But I'm a bit allergic to CBT in the sense that it tells people that the reason they're depressed is because of the way they think, right? So let's imagine, let's go back to that farmer in Cambodia who's in the field, right? before the kid gets the cow. Imagine saying, to him, well, the reason you're depressed is because your thought patterns don't work properly. We need to change your thought patterns so you can tolerate. Or think about all the people who are stuck in meaningless jobs and saying, you know, reason you're depressed is because you don't think right about your work. To me, CBT seems a particularly individualist kind of, uh, the worst kind of hyper-American as opposed to the best parts of American culture. And, um, and I want to say there are re- loads of really good CBT therapists who would agree with what I'm saying. And, I'm, I'm to some degree arguing against the worst kind of CBT. Don't, don't yeah. misunderstand me. But so there are some aspects of um, therapy that I think are really limited. But yeah, three kinds of causes: psychological, social, biological. Absolutely, treating the psychological aspect is really important, hugely valuable, and it should be available to far, far more far more people. in exactly the kind of trauma-informed work that you're doing, which is. Which I'm, I'm going
2: to have two more quick questions, right. and then we're done.
1: Sorry, I, I tend yes, to give long sir. answers, I apologize. No, no, no. Uh, thank you, Mr. Hari.
2: Um, I look forward to reading your work. Um, we actually have a lost connection. Twelve years ago, you referred to uh, a work of mine that's somewhat related called Artificial Happiness.
5: Oh, yeah. hello. Hello. <laughs> Anyhow,
2: uh, that was twelve years ago, and I also think that 150. we had a similar conversation, or society was having a similar conversation then. And if you look at 150 years ago, there were problems with capitalism then. People were having miserable times on their jobs. Marx wrote about the division of labor. There were utopians who preached communal living and uh, communal work, such as Robert Owen and Fairway Fourier. Uh, and you had a lot of people uh, overdosing on laudanum. So I guess the question is, what has really changed? Is this simply a problem that is endemic and chronic in Western society for at least the last 200
3: years? Even the framework is.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Your book is really good. I remember it. So the, thank you. For, for that, um, <clears throat> I don't wanna be so pessimistic. Loads of things are better, um, you know, think about, we would be in prison 80 years ago, me and Andrew, right? So I don't wanna, and all you women out there wouldn't be allowed to have bank accounts, right? Uh, so I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be either falsely golden ageist about the past or overly pessimistic about the present. There's loads of good things about the present. Violence is far lower now than it was, as Steven Pinker has shown so brilliantly. So there are plenty of things that made people feel terrible in the past that are reduced <coughs> now. So I wouldn't want to over, over, overdo the, 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 the pessimism. There are some, but there are some significant factors, which document obviously in the book, which make us feel terrible, which have significantly increased. So I think it's a mixed picture. And I just mention actually, because Andrew asked me about it, one example that has massively increased, which is disconnection from the natural world. The state prison in Michigan, not by design, by accident, One bit of it looks out over lovely green fields and trees and lush greenery and one part of it looks out over concrete. Fascinating study found. It was completely random where you Mm -hmm. ended up. It's in the prison. People who looked out over greenery were 23% less likely to develop mental health problems than the people who looked out over concrete. We are a species that evolved in a habitat, right? In zoos, if you take a parrot away from its habitat, it will start ripping out its feathers. A horse will start obsessively swaying. An elephant will grind its tusks down to nothing, and actually till they're bloody stumps, right? Animals deprived of their habitat often go crazy. We are deprived of the habitat we evolved in, most of us, most of the time. And I think that's a significant factor in why we're... To present. So that would be an example that has really significantly increased in the last... The la- you know, my, my grandparents lived in a mountain in Switzerland that. Um, you know, plenty of drawbacks to that, but but the the believe me, go to Switzerland, you'll understand what I mean. But the but but the the but nonetheless, they were in the natural world all the time. You know, one last question from you, ma'am.
7: Hello. Thank you so much, and I'll try to keep it short since we're over eight over eight o'clock. Um, love it, love it, love it. The pendulum keeps swinging, and we needed it to swing in the direction in terms of thinking about depression and malaise. Um I'm a passionate psychotherapist for in a uh, federally qualified health center, so um, I have a, a huge social justice component, meaning I wouldn't be anywhere else. Um, I agree with you. All these societal changes, nature, communities, all of it would make less depressed people. What, my question is this. Our, our way of being able to help people right now is hooked to the fee-for-service billable model. Right, So I could get some grants to do some really cool, innovative stuff, and I'm glad people do that. And then the grant runs out and blah, 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 blah. So I have something I've been musing on for a while now, and, and your words might help. Um, I find that I have, I could think of any array of clients right now, okay? Some really, really sincere, wonderful bonding relationship for a year, And there's horrible things that have happened, and they're talking about it. They go on the med, and it picks up the floor, and then they're able to connect with people in a new way. So meds work. Relationships work. What I'm thinking about now is after people start to do healing, and they start to feel some of that gratitude that you feel when you got the right med and the right psychotherapy, and things start to go a little better in your life, I'd love to see something around those people then coming together to kind of um, give back. And I know we all do that in individualistic ways. I feel better and I follow my bliss. But almost wondering if this system of mental health and mental health services can have a collective piece of it, not the individuals in um, therapy offices. And I'm wondering if there's an example of that. Does that make sense?
1: Sure. And I think the great example is the addiction recovery movements, right? Where we have huge, and there's there's some things to disagree with in those movements. But sure, I mean, you know, we had a lot of addiction in my family, as I wrote about in my previous book. And um, the great thing about that is we do have a great energy about paying forward, you know, the help that you were given. And I think we we can learn a huge amount from that in all other spheres. And one of the things I learned from all the places I went is how much... The struggle is the solution. Just coming together and fighting for something better in itself tells you, A, you're not crazy, right? It's not just you. And B, you then find community in the struggle, right? So I think there's something, I think you're totally right. And just to say, um, as a last thing, I had a, because I'm sure we have to go in a second. Um, I had a really weird experience at Politics and Prose the last time I was here for my last book, which is it was lovely, really nice experience, audience were really nice. But um, at the signing afterwards, a woman came up to me and she was like, um, Will you write a personal message? And I said, sure. She said, I'd like you to write, dear Peter, it's over. I never loved you anyway. <laughs> and I was like, no. You tell Peter. And she got and she got really angry. It was like, but I paid for this, but I was like, if you asked me to write like I love Hitler, I wouldn't write that either. And it was anyway, so any of you have anything more sane than that, I will write it. And I just want to say one other last thing, which is um, I specifically asked politics and pros to get in stock. Virtually Normal and Love Undetectable, which are Andrew's two uh, most incredible books. Virtually Normal, I think, is the most influential book in leading to social change that I have ever read. It's also an absolutely amazing book. If you haven't read it and you're only going to get one book today, I would recommend you get that, not mine. <laughs> but, um, but obviously, I really bought both. Anyway, and thank you so much to Andrew, for A, for chairing this, and B, for like transforming the whole world. <laughs> right. Thanks. Signing is up.
0: Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of the Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.